Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. We're switching things up a bit tonight. Chuck Wally will be on the mic, and I will be jumping over to our simultaneous um, Twitter tweet chat with Mae Wilkinson. You can join us using our hashtag TCK or going to our automated chat room. Um, You can interact with others and discuss the interview. And I hope you are ready to be motivated. Tonight, you will not only be motivated, but educated on the surprising truth about what motivates not only adults, but children as well. Our guest tonight is Daniel Pink, New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. His latest book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, uses 50 years of behavioral science to overturn the conventional wisdom about human motivation and offer a more effective path to high performance. I read a lot of books during this show, and I promise you, this is one not to be missed. I mean, I absolutely loved it. It not only inspired me, but it really validated what I see and what so many other parents are seeing. So I am thrilled to welcome Daniel Pink and Chuck Wally. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Marianne. Thanks a lot. And uh, as Marianne said, Dan Pink, best-selling author, uh, has four books under his belt. Free Agent Nation, a guide to a guide for self-sufficiency as an independent independent worker. Johnny Bunko, a story of a guy who did everything uh, everyone told him to do and found himself stuck at a dead end job. A Whole New Mind, uh, a book this, that discusses how the era of left brain dominance is giving way to the right brain. And as Marianne mentioned, Dan's latest book is Drive, and uh, incidentally. Drive comes out in paperback next week, and you can find it now at Amazon.com for the equivalent of two cappuccinos or uh, eight bucks. <laughs> so other than writing books, Dan appears before corporations and associations and uh, uh, big-thinking universities around the world to speak about economic transformation and the new workplace. He has articles on business and technology, and they appear in lots of publications like New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Wired. And to boot, he's also appeared on CNN, ABC, NPR, and lots of other stuff. And Dan's last real job, uh, just yeah, a little, you know, kind of a significant job, uh, was in the mid-'90s when he, where he served as Vice President Al Gore's chief speechwriter. And with that, Dan Pink, welcome to the Coffee Clash. Thank you, thank you for having me, Chuck. It's great to be uh, here on a on a cold night here in the nation's capital. Yeah, yes, very, very nice, uh, cold, wet, rainy night. So, Dan, you studied law, you have a JD, uh, then became a speechwriter, and went on to become a speaker on quote unquote economic transformation and technology. How did you get on the path of studying human behavior and then motivation? Oh, wow. Um, Well, it's a sort of a long and winding road um, in a complicated, not complicated, but kind of a long, uh, winding story. I mean, as you mentioned, I did go to law school. Um, I did did really poorly, didn't didn't really like it, um, didn't enjoy it, uh, didn't do well, uh, and actually I've never practiced law a day in my life. Um, upon leaving law school, I ended up working. In po- I wanted to work in politics, and I did that. I did a lot of economic policy, and then just ended up finding my way into speech writing, just because I was a pretty fast typist and 
Someone <laughs> wants to find me a speech, and then I did an okay job, and they assigned me another one, and before I knew it, I was a speechwriter. Uh, then I couldn't take that any longer. Uh, I did that for many years, and, but I just couldn't take it any longer. And I thought what was really interesting was um, what was going on in the world of business and the world of work, uh, and particularly the world of work, which I thought was, you know, we don't take seriously enough. Human, You know, all of us spend at, at least half of our waking hours at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes it a really rich study of who human beings are and what makes them tick. And um, so I started, you know, that was what I was most interested in and just started writing about that and started decided to work for myself um, out of then a third-floor attic office and um, found it just really, really interesting and, and, you know, was able to, do okay enough as a writer to so that my kids had winter coats and <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, well, that, that's and, and as as you um, as you mentioned, getting to the, this question about motivation, I um, wrote a book that you, you very kindly mentioned called A Whole New Mind, and that book argues that we're moving from a world built less on these logical, linear, sequential SAT spreadsheet kind of abilities to one built more on these artistic, empathic, big-picture capabilities because the right. spreadsheet SAT abilities have become relatively easy to offshore, relatively easy to automate, and less valuable in an age of abundance. And what really matters are these harder-to-outsource, harder-to-automate right-brain abilities. And so I wrote mm-hmm. a book about that, and, and in, the course of, you know, in the course of doing that, people said, okay, well, this is interesting. If, if you're right about this shift from left-brain to right-brain, or if you're more right than wrong about it, uh, how do you motivate people to do this kind of work? And uh, I got that question, and I said, I have no clue. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't. I didn't, have, I didn't have a clue. What I did know is that there was a pretty significant body of research out there on human motivation, and so I started reading it, and um, just out of curiosity. And I, I started looking at it, and, and I discovered two things. First, it was a ginormous body of research, I mean, just vast. Mm-hmm. And it started saying some things that were really surprising. It started overturning orthodoxies that I didn't even realize were orthodoxies. And I thought it was so interesting. I said, man, I want to know more about this. And, you know, the way I figured, if, if I'm curious about it, then other people would be curious about it too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about those jobs. Because, you know, when I was signing up for classes in my freshman year of college a long, 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 long time ago, a guidance counselor asked me what I wanted to study. And I said, eh, maybe social work, maybe law. And, you know, he kind of rolled his eyes and asked, what else? And, you know, I said, well, I think computers are kind of cool. And then he said, there you go. Let's get you on oh, a computer science track, you know. Uh-huh. You'll always have a secure job. Right. And, um, yeah. So, you know, Dan, he lied. And uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of those safe and secure jobs are gone. You know, the, the sure. accountants, the computer programmers, and, you know, really to some extent engineers and, and even lawyers. So, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, talk, you talked a little bit about this. Uh, you know, what happened to those jobs and when are they coming back? Well, it's not only the jobs, but it's really, you know, we can think about the jobs, but, I mean, jobs in some ways are a collection of functions, a collection of duties, a collection of tasks. And a lot of the tasks, inside of those jobs um, are relatively easy to turn into computer code. So, for instance, mm-hmm. let's take, you know, you mentioned accountants, okay? So, it, you know, it's, it's tax season right now. And you have people, you, you know, you have tax accountants out there who will do, say, you know, your individual tax return or my individual tax return. Right. And, you know, maybe they'll charge 1000 bucks for that and 900 bucks for that. Um, but, you know, you and I can also go out and buy a copy of, not even go out. We can go to our computer and download 
a copy of TurboTax for yeah. $40. Yeah, um, or, do it ourselves because a lot yeah. of those accounting functions are routine. And so if you think about being that accountant, you know, you've got a competitor coming in. You're charging 1000 Your competitor's charging 40 I mean, it's, right. it's a 90% <laughs> discount. Yeah. Um, you even see it with something like you even see it within the fun. Now that doesn't mean that all accounting jobs are going to disappear. Right. What it right. means is that to be an accountant, you have to be able to do something that the computer can't, mm-hmm. which is see the big picture, make connections, empathize with clients, be a salesperson, explain things well to people. Those are the functions that really matter the most, not the yeah. SAP spreadsheet schoolbook functions, but the more right brain kinds of functions. You see it also with law and automation. Um, there is, um, I mean, yeah, you know, again, when I when I went when I graduated from law school, there were, you know, you know, one of the jobs that people would get out of law school is they would get they would become an associate, a first year uh-huh. yep. at, a, at a large law firm. Yeah. And one of the things that first year lawyers do is they do something called discovery uh, in yeah. big complex commercial litigation cases. And what that means is that you basically go to a hotel room in Dallas or a hotel conference room in Dallas with large boxes of documents, and you read through them looking for stuff, read through email exchanges and letters looking for stuff. Well, now there's a whole booming industry of e-discovery, of electronic discovery, where you scan those documents in, and you have a computer look for that stuff. Um, That makes, you know, so so those kinds of skills for a lawyer don't really matter that much anymore. And so that's automation. And then, um, and then, you know, now you have something the Bureau of Labor Statistics said not too long ago that roughly 13 out of every 100 computer programming jobs are now going to um, places like India or India. Malaysia or the Philippines because right. people there can do that basic, I don't mean basic the computer language, but sort of rudimentary mm-hmm. computer programming for one-third the cost. Right. Now, it doesn't A mean that we less. don't have any more software engineers. What it means, is though, is that doing, say, fabrication, maintenance, fixing bugs in software isn't a valuable task, mm-hmm. in at least in the United States. And so what you right. have to be able to do is be a software architect, invent software, or understand software and understand the business side. Uh, and it's those kinds of broader, more whole-minded skills that really matter the most. Right. So, you know, you talk about these skills um, you mentioned them a little bit. What are they, and 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 how do we grow those skills? Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. It's, so it's it's really these skills that again are 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 again the way to think of it is it's something that's hard to offshore, uh, hard to automate. That is hard to reduce the lines of code in the computer program. But then also the third one is, is the other factor is that is that actually give the world something new that that creates something the world didn't know was missing. Mm-hmm. That one of the things going on now in the economy, in a world where you have just an incredible saturation of stuff, even in a dicey economy, of incredible saturation of stuff, incredible saturation of material goods. I mean, the standard of living, the material standard of living in this country, deep into the middle class, is breathtaking by historic, breathtaking by international standards. You know, you have, you know, you know, I'm old enough that when when I was a kid. When I was born, you only had maybe two or three percent of households in America had a color television set. Right. What, what, now you have ninety nine point eight percent of American households have a color television set. Yeah. yeah this, is not, this is a country that has a 14, disgraceful fourteen percent poverty rate. So most households in poverty today have something that was a luxury item yeah. in my yeah. lifetime. Yeah. 
you know, or it's about, you know, I've got, I've got, my wife and I have three kids, but our our daughters are 14 and 12. Our daughters um, uh, each have mobile phones. Those mobile Mm -hmm. phones that are, and these are not, they don't have iPhones, they don't have Blackberries, they have the $29 Samsung that comes with the basic contract, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the mobile phone that, that our daughters have, have more computing power in it than existed in the world when my grandparents were my age. Right. And so this level of abundance means, I don't mean to go on and on about this, but the, the, but this level of abundance means is that you have to be able to create something entirely new. You have to be able to give the world something it didn't know it was missing. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's an important, uh, that, yeah, for me, that's really an important point because, you know, you have to become... Um, as who is it? Was it Seth Green that says you have to become the linchpin? Um, Seth Godin, yeah. 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 So, right. Oh, I'm sorry. You, Go ahead. Yeah. yeah no, 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 that's exactly it. That is, we, we, you know, a lot of times business was about category enhancement. So we have this category, say, called breakfast cereal. We have this category called, called television sets. Um, and the, the job of business was basically to come up with, okay, here's a different variety of breakfast cereal. Here's a different size television set, you know, constantly enhancing these categories. And there's just not a lot of juice left in that orange, if you're part of the mixed metaphor there. There's just not a lot of juice left mm-hmm. in that orange. And right. the real, because, you know, something goes from a category, creating a category, to being a commodity very, very swiftly. So right. what really matters is not enhancing categories, but creating categories. And again, so that's just, uh, this is sort of the third leg of this stool hard to outsource, hard to automate, and that creates something new. And what that means is that the abilities that matter most today are not so much of these classically high-tech abilities, the sorts of abilities that your guidance counselor said were the guarantor of a fat and happy, prosperous life. I mean, those high-tech abilities still matter, but what really matters are these high co- are abilities that are high-concept and high-touch, hard right. to outsource, hard to automate, give the world something new. And so anyway, yeah. to answer your question, which I actually will do right now, is you know, you said, what are the abilities that matter? It's things like design. I think the design thinking has become a fundamental business literacy today. It's things like story and mastery of narrative, because we live in a world of ubiquitous facts. Facts are everywhere, and they're free. And that mm-hmm. means that finding facts doesn't have much value. What matters more is putting facts in context and delivering them with emotional impact. That's what a story does. It's an ability that I call symp- – there's also the ability that I call symphony – which is pattern recognition, seeing the big picture, crossing boundaries, putting the pieces together. I think it's really the killer app. Um, something like empathy, which I think is also just profoundly important and routinely overlooked. Right. Empathy is the ability, you know, just to, to stand in someone's shoes, see with their eyes, feel with their heart. It's very hard to outsource, very hard to automate, but mm-hmm. it's at the at the center of all kinds of business functions, whether it's leadership, whether it's sales, whether it's customer service, whether it's design, hugely important. Um, something like play, which is laughter, humor, and games, joyfulness. And finally, a sense of, uh, of meaning and purpose. That is, uh, you know, we have all this stuff. We have all these iPods and iPads, and most car, most, you know, we have in this country, we have more automobiles than we have licensed drivers. But right. um, people are still searching for a sense of meaning, purpose, and significance. So those kinds of abilities, design, story, symphony, empathy, play, and meaning, are really the ones that are 
at least in my mind, marking the fault line between who moves forward and who gets left behind. Yeah, I I hear you, but, you know, I'm a linear thinker still, and it really sounds scary. You know, how can I become a right-brain thinker? You know, what, and what can I do to help my, you know, Aspergian son use his right brain as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, I am a linear thinker, too, very much. I'm, I'm like as hardcore of a left-brain person as you could possibly imagine. And I think one of the things that is that if you really look at things analytically, it seems like this is where the world is going. The good news here is that these these so-called, and again, I'm using right brain and left brain as metaphors. Our brains are more right. complicated than that. But if, right, right. If, if, um, the thing to keep in mind is that these sorts of capacities, the capacity to design, the capacity to um, uh, see the big picture, um, to systematize in that way, to empathize with others, those are fundamentally human abilities. That is, those mm-hmm. are fundamentally abilities that make us human. There are abilities that actually all of us have because we're human. It's just that for a lot of us, myself included, there are abilities that have been, uh, you know, dormant, that, that have never been called out of hiding. And mm-hmm. so I think that what I've found with people is that when they begin, they need to just begin, they're like muscles that have atrophied. And so they need to begin exercising these muscles a little bit, making them a little bit stronger. And what people often discover is that they're actually pretty good at some of these things. Yeah. So because again, they're uh, fundamentally human abilities. So humans, human beings are designers. From the time somebody scraped flint on a rock to make an arrowhead, that's an act right. of design. Human right. beings are storytellers by their nature, by the structure of their brains. We see the world not only as a series of logical propositions, but as a series of episodes. When I, you know, when 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 a person comes home from work and says to his spouse, you know, his spouse or his partner says. You know what? How was your day? The guy doesn't say, "Oh, how was my day?" Let me show you my 14-slide PowerPoint deck. Which right. <laughs> says, you know, oh, you're not going to believe. First this happened, then that happened, then that happened. We narrate, and so um, human beings are, by their nature, empathic. Human beings, by their nature, um, want to have a sense of joyfulness and want to, you know, a sense of games in their lives. Uh, human beings have always search for the purpose. We look into the sky and say, how the heck did we get here? What's it all about? And those kinds of abilities, I think we're often dismissed as soft, as not serious. And mm-hmm. and now, there's a very, very hard-headed case to be made about how those are the most important abilities. And the right. good news is that because they're human abilities, they're abilities that all of us can get can get better at. Yeah. Sort of like, I'm going to give you another way to look at it, okay? okay. Sort of like literacies. Okay, we would never say, with very, very few exceptions, we would never go to be in a school and say, "Hey, little, you know, uh, uh, Maria, you know what? She just can't be literate. She just can't be numerate." You know, we would say, "Well, of course she can. She can be literate. She can be numerate." Um, it doesn't mean that being literate means that she's going to be the next, um, you know, Jonathan Franzen or Toni Morrison. And if she's numerate, it doesn't mean she's going to be, you know, the next Albert Einstein. But she can right. be literate and numerate. And the mm-hmm. same thing is with these abilities. Right. And, you know, we have uh, lots of uh, uh, parents of children with special needs all around the country nodding their head in agreement with you, Dan. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and now you, you touched on motivation, or, or I'm sorry, you touched on uh, uh, meaning, 
And that kind of gets us into uh, our next topic, which is motivation. And you 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 write a wonderful book about motivation. Thanks. Uh, your Drive is a great book, and I'll mention it again. Uh, it's on Amazon.com for eight bucks. Go out and get it next week. Um, yeah, it's also it's on. You know, it's also. I mean, just to be, just to be fair to my all my all my bestseller <laughs> friends. I mean. Uh, uh, yeah. Barnes & Noble has it, uh, Borders has it, your favorite independent bookseller has it. Right, so, right, sure. Yeah. We love, we love yeah. all of our we love all love of them our all. booksellers. Yes, yes. Um, so tell us a little bit how motivation has changed over, you know, the past million years or so. <laughs> um, well, let's go back, um, let's go back 50,000 years, okay, because okay. there really weren't humans as we think of humans. A million years ago. Okay, so let's okay. go. You know, let's go back fifty thousand. That's actually actually interesting. Really, check an interesting way to ask the question. That's actually a really astute way to ask the, to, to frame it, because our motivations have changed somewhat over the years, or at least been elaborated on over the years. So, okay, so let's go back fifty thousand years, and 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 our ancestors are on the savanna, and evolving. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to survive. We're trying to outrun that saber-toothed tiger. Or at least I'm trying to outrun you, so the saber-toothed tiger gets you <laughs> rather than me. All right. Right. It's all about, and so and so the main motivator are these is basically the bio, these biological urges, uh, survival, uh, the quest for to, you know, sate your hunger, quench your mm-hmm. thirst, satisfy sexual drives, um, and and that was basically the main human motivation. And obviously, that's still part of who human beings are. We all have a right. biological drive, but that's not all human beings are. No one would ever say human beings are merely their biological drives, because we know we're more sophisticated than that. And as societies got more complex, as people, you know, if I'm just living in my own small tribe and my own small clan, that's fine. But if I have to start doing business with your tribe or your clan, you need a more sophisticated arrangement. And so, we, so we began to ever so slowly surface this second drive, which is that human beings respond very well to rewards and punishments in our environment. So typically mm-hmm. when you reward behavior, you get more of it. When you punish it, you get less of it. And that turns out to be a very effective way to conduct business, to organize commerce. Um, and human beings are very responsive to that kind of drive. You know, if you offer me, if you were to say to, be, say to me, hey, Dan, I'll give you $500 right now to go stand on your dining room table, I'm there, man. All right? yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll respond to that. All right, and so, uh, but again, that's not all human beings are, because human beings also have another drive. We we do things because not to satisfy our hunger or our thirst or our sex drives, or to make a get a reward or to avoid a punishment. But we do things for their own sake. We do things because they're interesting, because we like doing them, because they contribute to the world, because they're the right thing to do. And that third drive ends up being very very powerful. And the reason it's significant more significant today, really goes to, what Chuck, what we were just talking about, which is the nature of work itself. I went back for this book and looked at about 50 years of research in human motivation. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating stuff, laboratory experiments, field studies from social scientists, mostly psychologists, but you know, a few sociologists, uh, a lot, you know, number of economists, especially recently. And what they found, again, to summarize it very, very simply, is this. If you want people to do relatively simple, straightforward work, that really that kind of left brain work, the rule-based work, where you're following a set of rules, 
following an algorithm, following a recipe, getting a right answer, the classic kind of motivator that we use in organizations, what I call an if-then motivator. If you mm-hmm. do this, you that. Those if-then motivators for the simple, mechanical, algorithmic sorts of tasks, they work pretty well. They get people to focus, eliminate distractions, barrel straight ahead. They're pretty effective. The right. problem is, is that fewer of us are doing that kind of work. Fewer of us are doing that mechanical, algorithmic, spreadsheet, SAT kind of work. And the science is equally clear that if you want people to do something that's more creative, more that requires more complex thinking, that requires more conceptual thinking, that requires you know that's sort of artistic in the sense of giving people something new, giving people something they didn't know they were missing, making new connections, coming up with novel solutions. The science is very clear that the, that that kind of motivator, again, this if-then motivator, if you do this, then you get that. They just don't work very well. They often so, they, they often fail. Sometimes they even do harm. So you're saying this kind of touchy-feely thing is more powerful than you know serious scratch. It depends. You know. He, so well, what, what science says is that is that those kinds of motivators for the for the for the for the more sophisticated conceptual creative work. Are just aren't that effective. They don't work. And, you know, there's study after study over this. And what's frustrating about it is that when we see these these carrot and stick kind of motivators demonstrably fail before our eyes, when we see them flop before our very eyes, our response isn't to say, hey, let's try something new. Our response is to say, man, those carrot and stick motivators failed again. I guess we need more carrots. I guess we need more sticks. And it's taking us down a fundamentally misguided path. It's a, it's a path right. that's misguided... Not, I mean, maybe it's misguided in a moral sense, but it's misguided in the scientific sense. It's just not. It's antithetical to what 50 years of science tells us we should be doing. Um, right. The good news is that, as you suggest, there's a, there's another way, which is, again, in the workplace at least, is paying people enough. Okay, this, I'm just not. A, I'm not saying that scratch doesn't matter, that money doesn't matter. Not at all. Money matters a lot. It just matters in a, in a way that I think is different from what. what people conventionally expect, which is mm-hmm. essentially this. The best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. So they focus on the work, not on the money. Because once you pay people enough, once you treat people fairly, holding out additional units of money for has very little effect on performance or satisfaction. Right. It matters more. But if you don't get that right, it's over. If you don't pay right. people it, fairly, it's over. You're not going to get motivation. Right, right. Um, it, so, so money really. So, there's a paradox here. Money really does matter a lot. Money is extraordinarily important, but not quite in the way that we typically have believed. Once you and do that, once, once you hit that threshold, what matters more are is a sense of autonomy, giving people some sovereignty over what they do, how they do it, when they do it, who they do it with, um, uh, mastery. That is, our desire to get better at something that matters. Uh, incredibly powerful motivator, and also purpose. That is, if we can see how what we do contributes to a larger whole. And mm-hmm. autonomy, mastery, and purpose end up being very powerful motivators for sustained motivation, long-term motivation. Yeah. So I, I take it um, – well, I, I think I read your book. I know that there have been some studies that have, uh, you know, had, that that have validated this. Uh, can you talk about some of those? Oh man, check. There's so many of them. I mean, I mean, they're just. I mean, it's basically again for 50 years. I mean, I'll tell you about. Okay, so so let's take let's take uh, uh, one of my favorite studies is from a very very skilled, um, I think 
soon-to-be legendary economist named Dan Ariely, who's at um, Don Ariely, that um, he's now at Duke, and he and some colleagues did a really interesting study a few years ago in both Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in Madurai, India, where they went like this. So they 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 had people do a series of tasks, both um, uh, physical tasks like throwing a ball through a hoop, as well as cognitive tasks like memorizing strings of digits, alphabetizing things quickly, uh, mm-hmm. all the way up the ladder to more complex problem-solving, creative thinking. And they divided people into three groups. One group got a very small, said if you're one of the top performers, you get a small amount of money. The second group said if you're one of the top performers, you get a medium amount of money. Third group said, said to the third group, if you're one of the top performers, you get a lot of money. And in the case of India, it was, in the Indian experiments, it was something like five months, the equivalent of five months' pay. And, and, and so, you know, the idea is that the larger the reward, the better the performance. And that turned out to be true in part. That is, when the task required mechanical skill, the bonuses worked as they would be expected. The higher the pay, the better the performance. But what was so interesting about this study is that once the task called for even rudimentary cognitive skill, a larger reward led to poorer performance. That's amazing. It's amazing. You know, and, you know, and again, this is not some kind of socialist conspiracy here. <laughs> you know, these are this is you know Ariely, incredibly talented guy. He's an economist. Okay, he's not he's not a sociologist, not a psychologist. He's an economist. He did it with three fellow economists, and the research was funded by the Federal Reserve Bank. So I mean, this is really the mainstream of the mainstream in economics, challenging this orthodoxy that we don't realize is an orthodoxy. Is that right. sometimes these carrot and stick motivators work? But sometimes, many times, more often than we, we realize, they simply don't work very well. And how about how how does the uh, carrot and stick apply to our children? You know, if if we uh, if we give our children if then rewards, will it uh, cause them to perform, you know, less, so to speak? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, here's the thing, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a parent, we have, my wife and I have three kids, and, you know, carrot and sticks are, as a parent, are extremely attractive, because, <laughs> you know, they are, they're easy and they work in the short term. Right. And, um, the danger, though, is that I think that in many cases they teach kids just profoundly the wrong lesson. I'll, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of this. Let's think about, um, something like allowances. Let's think about, you know, doing household chores and getting an allowance, Okay. I think household chores are a good thing for kids. I think allowances can be a good thing for kids. I think combining the two is just an atrocious, horrible idea. <laughs> um, and you know, and the reason for that is this: they're, they're, the re, you know, so let's say, why do you do chores? Why do you do, do you do chores as a kid? Well, you do it because you're part of a family. You do it because you have obligations to other people. You do it because you're part of this whole enterprise and you need to contribute. You do it because you have a responsibility. And why do you get an allowance? Well, I think you get an allowance. Kids can get an allowance of a small amount of money so they you know, get better at understanding what money is about and managing it. But once you connect the two, once you say, hey, you know, if you do your chores, then you'll get this money, you've basically said to these kids that doing chores has nothing to do with these obligations to your family. It's basically... Right. It's 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 like working in McDonald's. It's right. Like something only only a chump would do it for free. Yep. And well, that's it. Yeah, that's interesting because I think you know any parent inherently knows that. Um, 
yet we uh you know we we have we treat our kids one way and then you know as employees we treat them completely different you know so we keep I think offering I think, those. I think there is i think there is some truth of that um um and you know, I think you know. You know, I think about you know, in 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 chores. If I, if I said to my if I said to my kids, you know, um, you know, if you if you um, take out the garbage, I'll give right now. I'll give you ten bucks. I'd have three kids elbowing each other out of the way to get that money. Um, but once, um, but I think the odds of my getting have, having them empty the garbage two weeks from now, if I haven't taken <laughs> all the money, are zero. Right. You know. Right. Um, and um, um, you know, but but that, that's that's the sort of that's the, that's one of the things that's so enticing about it is that they do they do work in the short term. Um, yeah, they can have a lot of collateral damage in uh, in the in the long term because you know yeah. again, families aren't businesses; they're families. Right, right. So I mean, that sounds idiotic in a way, but I mean, you know, it sounds yeah. idiotic in a in its how self evident it is, but. You know, we, we. I'll give you one other interesting study check that might drive this home. It's a really fascinating study. Um, there's a study of, you know, again, we have this theory that if you punish behavior, you'll get less of it. And it's a study of an Israeli daycare center. And this daycare center noticed that some portion of parents were coming late. And so they decided you had to pick up your kid by 4 o'clock. Some parents were coming late. So they started, they instituted a fine for coming late. So you had to pay. I don't know. It's not not a big fine. Maybe the equivalent of if you showed up late, you had to pay. I don't know. Maybe I don't remember the exact number, but it was maybe six or seven dollars mm-hmm. per kid if you were late. Okay. So obviously, you put in that fine, that punishment, and it's going to, you know, fewer parents are going to show up late. Maybe not a lot fewer parents, but maybe you know some parents will show up late. So they put in the fine, and what happens? More parents started showing up late. It increased the lateness. What? How could that possibly be? And essentially, what it was is that we we confuse the moral realm and the moral and social realm and the economic realm. So the mm-hmm. reason parents were showing up on time initially is because they had that you know there were consequences to their showing up late. The caregiver had to stay late, right? Uh, so right. They had a, you know the moral responsibility, and so that most people did the right thing. But once you put a price on it, it's like bu- you know buying a bag of potato chips. You know you want yeah. four bags of potato chips, pay for four bags. It catapulted out of the moral social realm into the economic realm. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing on its face, but that economic realm plays by a very different set of rules. Right. And the, the other thing is that it becomes a. Um, um, so 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 here so this is sort of this misguided theory about what really motivates people. They they said we want to stop this kind of behavior. We we, we want to change this behavior. We want to punish. We want to. Uh, uh, have parents stop coming late. So what we're going to do is we're going to fine them, and therefore the fine will deter them. And what happened is it actually doubled the incidence of lateness. And yeah. so, and then when they said, "Oops, that's the kind of a mistake." Think about that. They put in a, they put in something designed to deter lateness, and they doubled the behavior they were trying to deter. Right. <laughs> so okay, well, yeah. So then they withdraw the fine, and what happens? So the incidence of lateness stays up. Because you know, so they had done permanent harm. Yep. It, um, well, it makes perfect sense as well. I mean, to me, because you know, at one point you have uh, some kind of connectedness with that uh, caregiver, where you're right. 
concerned about them, and you know that if you're late, they're going to be late. Yet, exactly. If, right, and and if you, uh, you know, and that's one thing that we preach here on the Coffee Clash a lot is, you know, get to know parents, get to know your teachers, get to know the caregivers, get to know people, because, you know, it makes that one-on-one connectedness and gives a little bit of meaning to that relationship. So. So, you know, and, and it kind of gets around to, you know, the whole nut of this conversation is, you know, Dan, we, I know I read this book. I know Marianne read your book, and we were just really charged up by it because it really, as Marianne Absolutely. said, as Marianne said, it really validated what we talk about here on the Coffee Clutch. And I know Marianne agrees, don't you, Marianne? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it's what, you know, what you're saying about the intrinsic and the extrinsic, um, you know, way of thinking and behaving is what the parents are really seeing. And I think that this book is going to give, you know, not just adults, but, you know, the parents courage to stand up to the conformity. Because, you know, we're seeing what you're saying. It's not working, (laughs) you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's. I think I, I think that's the way. I, I really like the way you put that sort of that that I, that phrase of the courage to stand up for the conformity because I do think that people that it's interesting the reaction that I've gotten because I get a lot of email from from readers and they say I kind of sort of knew this. I always kind of felt this, you know, you know, they sort of have this kind of gut sense of intuition that 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 human beings, whether it's themselves or their kids or their their colleagues at work are, are not merely kind of, you know, better-smelling two-legged donkeys, you know. They, they're not just, right. like, not all about the carrot and the stick, that we're more complicated than that. We're more well, transcendent you, than that. We're more noble than that. Right, mm-hmm. and you say that in the book. You know, you say, think about your job. And, you know, I think that if people can do that, I mean, I'm in a fortunate position because when I think about it, I mean, I could spend... You know, it could be two in the morning and I'm still here working on the coffee clutch, but it's so rewarding. And, you know, we, we don't get paid for this. We volunteer our time. And mm-hmm. when you think of tasks that I have to do, I'm a procrastinator. But mm-hmm. when it comes to this, you know, there's just so much, you know, such a sense of accomplishment and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you if you think about that and you put it towards the children, you can really start to see where we're headed in the wrong direction. And, you know, you mm-hmm. make, um, in the book you talk about um, Google and what they did. I think you wrote that they gave them 20% of their time to create anything that interests them. And why don't you, mm-hmm. you know, tell the audience what happened? Oh, yeah. There's a, and Google's not the only one. There, there are a number of companies that are doing this. So, um, um, in fact, my favorite example is this company, Australian company called Atlassian that, that does um, that does this really cool thing where uh, once a quarter on a Thursday afternoon, uh, they tell their software developers, "Go work on anything you want. Do it the way you, as long as it's not part of your regular job. Do whatever you want the way you want. The only thing we ask is that you show what you've created to the rest of the company on Friday afternoon uh, in this fun, you know, freewheeling, wacky meeting. They call these things FedEx days because they have to deliver something overnight." And it turns out that this one day of this autonomy has led to all of these fixes for existing software, ideas for new products, improvements to internal processes that had otherwise never emerged. And if you just think about that, we typically would say if we want people to be more innovative, then what we do is we dangle a carrot out in front of them and say, hey, Marianne, if you do something groovy, I'll give you a carrot. And instead what they're doing here is, is saying, let me just get out of your way. You probably want to do something. 
cool and groovy. Let me just get out of your way for a day. And it's worked so well, as you suggest, that they, they've upped the ante to 20% time, where now they can spend 20% of their time working on whatever they want. So that's what they do at Atlassian. That's what they've been doing at Google since inception. And if you look at a lot of you know, things that Google has done really well, uh, if you look at something like Google News, which has reshaped the American newspaper business, Google mm-hmm. News was not an official project. It was a 20% project. Uh, Google developed, There's a Google application that called uh, it's a People Finder application, um, which should kind of help locate lost people, uh, which is important in natural disasters and whatnot. It mm-hmm. ended up being very useful in Japan. Um, that People Finder project, you know, very important Google tool, not an official project. It was some 20% project. Look at something like Gmail. I, f- I feel like half the emails that I get these days are from people who have Gmail accounts. Gmail, not an official project, a 20% project. Um, a company like Intuit gives its, allows its folks to have 10% of their time to do whatever they want. Um, not, not, you know, and again, they don't sign away the intellectual property rights to what's created during that 20% time. Right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a hard-headed approach. It's a hard-headed approach to business, and so that's what it is. It's basically saying, hey, maybe we need a few. Maybe we need to go a little easier on these carrot and sticks, and a little bit more on autonomy and freedom and self-direction. And with special needs kids, especially those that have oppositional behaviors, I mean, the carrots and sticks absolutely don't work. And, you know, Chuck, I know that you're probably going to, um, you know, agree with me on this. I know, you, you know, your son's getting a little bit older, but, you know, I found that, um, you know, I think, you know, in your book you wrote a bit about um, education and you wrote about um, unschooling. And unschooling, for those who don't know, is pretty much homeschooling and it's a non-text type of learning. It's learning with experiences with the world. And I think that people um, often underutilize some programs that are offered, like BOCES and other programs, because, Mm. um, you know, I think that if you let these kids really learn what they want to learn and really Mm. be able to be creative and you foster their interests, I mean, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You don't have to be homeschooling. There are fantastic programs out there. You know, my daughter goes to a school for the arts. Um, You know, there are programs for pre-veterinary programs, Mm -hmm. architecture, whatever these kids want. And they Mm -hmm. can go to school half day and then they go to these special schools where they have these Mm -hmm. great programs. And it would just be such a great thing. I think it would really complement what you're saying here. Um, I, I, I agree. I agree. And and I, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat your phrase, Marianne, which is that what it takes is is parents and and also educators who are willing to who have the courage to stand up to the conformity, who you know and have the ability to and the courage. I, I, it is an act of courage to listen to that voice that says, "Wait a second, is this really the right way to be doing things? Is this you know are we going?" You know, at an even more fundamental level, are the things that we're doing, are we going with the grain of human nature or are we going against the grain of human nature? Right. And then why we're going against the grain, it's because, you know, it's what we've been taught. It's what we've been told. It's what we've always done, exactly. Yeah. It's like herd mentality, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Um, right, yeah. And it's, you know, few, few, fewer and fewer people are stepping back and saying, Hmm. Why do we do it that way? Is this really the best way to do it? And you know, the good news is that the, the history of of advancement in anything, whether it's in politics, whether it's in technology, whether it's in science, is is really a history of people who say who stand up to orthodoxies, 
who challenge you know who challenge that conventional wisdom. And um, you know, I think that's what we need to be doing here. And the good news is that we have science on our side. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of things shaking up. You know, Chuck and I were speaking before the interview. I mean, there's just so much going on in, in um, you know, the schools today. With the everyone knows what's going on with Wisconsin and everything else. And you posted actually um, an article today that I, I commented on about. Um, I think it was about you know cheating on um, standardized testing. Yeah, um, I mean, here in here in here in, district, here in the district here in the district of Columbia. Right. There was just this incredible amount of, I mean, we don't know whether it's, we can't quite call it cheating yet, but, you know, incredible number, just a wildly disproportionate number, a statistically almost impossible to happen randomly number of uh, physical test papers here in in the District of Columbia that had erasures that changed wrong answers to right answers. And when I read that, I thought of you. With the carrots and the sticks, because exactly. there was the little carrot being dangled that if you get great grades, you know, you, you get rewarded for it. And yeah. it read to really putting, you know, I think overall tremendous pressure on our kids, mm-hmm. which is burning them out. And it showed that it's, you know, it, it's really bringing districts to a level where, you know, they'll do things that are just really sending a bad message just to get mm-hmm. rankings. You know, it's a lot of pressure on these kids. So, you know, how do how do parents undo it? That's a great question. um, It's um it's it's difficult. I don't think it's I don't think an individual parent can undo that on his or her can undo this stuff on 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 his or her own. And I think that if an individual parent looks at say an educate the education system and says, "Can I change everything?" I think the answer is no. You can't. Uh, but I think in some ways that's the wrong question. Uh, the better question is to say, can I do one thing tomorrow to make things a little bit better? And you can. So you have now, I mean, again, there are different degrees of radicalness here. Um, you, you have some parents now who, and and this is a trend that I think is going to increase, who are basically pulling their kids out of standardized tests, basically writing a note or opting out, saying my kid doesn't do standardized tests. Um, that's one, you know, that's one pretty extreme um, that's one pretty extreme stake. The other thing yeah. you can do is that you can, you know, parent, obviously parents, the best thing to do is to model certain behavior, model that kind of intrinsically motivated, self-directed behavior. Absolutely. Um, I think it's you, you, you don't do things like combined uh, allowances and, uh, and chores. You encourage kids to find their own deep interests. You <laughs> encourage them it, it, that... You know, to, to achieve mastery requires an enormous amount of work, an enormous amount of practice. You get past, I mean, you, you probably have talked about her work on this program, but, you know, I encourage every parent to read the work of Carol Dweck, uh, the Stanford psychologist who's written a lot about, about uh, mindsets and whether you have a growth mindset or whether you have a fixed mindset. Uh, it's about understanding the difference between learning goals that is learning something for the sake of learning and performance goals, which is basically just trying to get a, a score. Um, so I think there are a lot of small things that parents can do. And, and I think you know also you know like Chuck and and I and you know the other the rest of the people on our team, it's individualized. We you know our slogan here, which you probably don't know, is "You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who?" And I think that's you know a lot of it where it has to start is you really have to stand up and and do what's best for your kid. You know, and I think that that will follow suit when they see these children succeeding. 
you know, it goes beyond right. differentiated learning because differentiated learning is great that, you know, they teach different te- learning styles, but it has to go beyond that to differentiated directions of learning, you know. Sure. Sure. I mean, I mean, again, what it really boils down to at some level is treating people as individuals, not as units or not as, um, you know, giant clumps. Right. It's as a commodity, you know, just, you know, as a, you're right, as a, as a unit. And, you know, Dan, for me, reading your book, what, what really hit home is I've always talked about happiness and that I want my son to be happy and I could never really define it but then you know you come up with your AMP you know your autonomy mastery and purpose and I think that really succinctly you know in a three letter acronym you know defines what I'm thinking about when I think of happiness well that's good that's great i mean and uh, and, uh, and you know i think that's another thing that parents can do is think you know what is it that that you know what do we really want for our kids, and and how can we best equip them to to do that? And ultimately, when you think about what is a good life, uh, it isn't about accumulating the grades or accumulating the accolades, but it's about you know being a good ethical person, about making a contribution to the world, and you know that's ultimately what we want. And I think that, you know, you could see that in people that, you know, the happiest people are not necessarily those with the most money. I mean, the happiest no. people are people that love what they're doing and that are helping other people, you know. That's exactly I mean, right. something important that people need to look at. That's exactly right. And, again, it's, it's I mean, I really am taken with your phrase, you know, the courage to stand up to the conformity, uh, which is that, you know, we have this notion, well, that's what it is. What it is to be happy is to have a lot of money, when, in fact, that's just empirically not true. Now, not having enough money can make right. somebody unhappy. There's no question. Right. 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 But but um but but past a certain point, additional units of money have you know a very decreasing impact on additional units of of of, of, of happiness. And when you when people look back on their lives, you talk to people in their 80s or their 90s, you know, and they and they think about their regrets. They they very you know you don't you don't see. You don't have somebody in eighty-five year old, ninety-five year old person saying, "Oh man, you know, I really messed up my life. I pursued what I was most interested in." Right. You know, no one says, "Oh man, I really wish I had not pursued what I was most interested in and just instead had done something that I hated but made a lot of money." Yeah. I mean, people don't say that. Right. Right. And- and, you know, with the conformity for our children, which are special needs children, conformity takes on a whole new meaning because yeah. conformity means, you know, being the norm. And our mm-hmm. children are not the norm. And what right. I think that we're learning is that conformity is really overrated and that due to being forced to find alternative ways of educating our children, we've seen what you're saying, yes. that our children are doing better, they're happier, they're motivated, and, you know, I say it all the time, people are tired of me hearing it, but we look for their gifts and we foster their gifts, and these kids are so much better off for it. Sure. Yep. yep. So, Dan, how how is the uh, business community uh, accepting your message? What do they have to say about this? You know, it's, um, I think people have been very, very receptive, um, and the business people have been extraordinarily receptive to this. Uh, I think part of it has to do with timing. 
I think you know the fact that this, that this basket of that I introduced this basket of ideas after the Great Recession rather than before was helpful. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that if 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 this would be a harder conversation, maybe have more skepticism about this um, five years ago than today. Right. Um, and, and I think I think I think there is a sense that um, that the old rules no longer work, and that uh, they no longer work in a in a very practical sense. Uh, uh, well, if, even if you look at something like you know, I think that we've seen in some ways the. Um, the, the limits of the profit motive as a motivator, you know. I mean, the profit motive is a really is a very good thing in a number of different ways, but it's not the only thing. And so, if you're working right. inside a publicly held company, and the rallying cry is "Let's raise earnings per share at three cents this quarter," that's a that's that's a perfectly noble goal, but it's not the kind of thing raising earnings per share at three cents this quarter that's going to make anybody leap out of bed and race to work to do something amazing. Right. You know, it's just insufficiently motivating. I think you have to combine that profit motive uh, with the purpose motive. And I, I, companies are reckoning with this. They're reckoning with, you know, the limits of uh, trying to control people as a as a means to high performance. They're reckoning with right. how do you give people good feedback and allow people to get better at stuff that matters. Yep. We have a few callers that have been on hold for a while. I want to try to at least get one or two calls in. Okay, so I'm going to try um, area code 701. Area code 701, are you still with us? I know you've been waiting a long time. Okay, I think they hung up. Let me try this one. Area code 240, are you on the line? I think they, I'm sorry, I apologize. They've been holding on since the very beginning of the show. Um, I apologize. Well, it was a fantastic interview. Um, Chuck, thank you. And uh, Daniel, the book is fantastic. Thanks a bunch of you guys. what you're, what you're, you know, what you're putting out there is something that everybody really needs to hear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the program, and um, thanks for doing this program. I think it makes, you know, makes you're, you guys are exemplars of this. You're not making a dime off of this program, but you're contributing to the world. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the thick of it. You're right. Yes. <laughs> It, it, it's it's very rewarding. It really is. Yes, yes, it is. Yes. Okay, yes. Daniel Pink, Drive, the surprising truth about what motivates us. Fantastic book. And and Dan, on uh, behalf of uh, Marianne and the uh, co-moderators of uh, the Coffee Clatch, and all the parents in our little network. Thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program, you guys. Uh, You're quite welcome. Uh, Tomorrow we have uh, Stuart Duncan joins us to discuss autism from a father's point of view and the importance of April 1st, I believe, which is Autism Awareness Day. That's at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. uh, That's uh, Saturday the 2nd. I have something in my throat. I apologize. That's that's okay, Marianne. That's okay. That's, I had your back. I got you. <laughs> Don't you always. <laughs> um, yeah, we have some great upcoming events. We have um, Sunday Ariva Martin, who's the author of The Everyday Advocate, co-founder of Special Needs Network, and she's um, a legal on-air expert on the Dr. Phil show and many other TV shows. 
On Monday, we have Gabriel Kaplan-Mayer, a writer, educator. She just wrote the book. Oh, she's written four books. Her last book is The Kitchen Classroom. It's about gluten-free, casein-free recipes to boost developmental skills. Tuesday is um, Denise Goldberg, fabulous, fabulous her company is Special Ed Advisor, and she'll be joining Elise, who honestly, these are the two best special education advocates I know. And they will be discussing preparing for the annual IEP meeting. Uh, the school year is almost over, and planning for next year is now. So um, they are going to get you confident and prepared. Um, Wednesday, we have special time. Our blog talk is going to be 1 o'clock um, p.m., that's 1 in the afternoon Eastern time. Susan Ewan McKay, who is the author of My Schizophrenic Life, the Road to Recovery from Mental Illness, incredible autobiography, a story of paranoia, hospitalizations, misinterpretations, um, just horrific um, um, suffering that she did and how uh, she's made a remarkable recovery of her sanity. And then Wednesday night, Chuck, May, uh, Barb, and myself will be on Tweet Chat. And Thursday, I am doing a chat on marriage and relationships, strains and stress while raising a special needs child, keeping the peace and the passion in the relationship. So that's our upcoming week. Thank you again to Daniel Pink. Thank you to Chuck. And thank you for joining us at the Coffee Clutch. You are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight.